Hello listener and welcome to another Theft of Moon. This episode is continuing a story that will make absolutely no sense if you don't start at the beginning. So please see a fictional story about necropolitics, part one. Our heroic narrator has left their village and gone under the mountain to explore the tangled web of tunnels where his world's industrial processes take place, where the dead are animated for the use of the living. Our heroic narrator finds themselves in a world where there is no line between some body and some thing, and begins to lose the perspective of a villager. So we begin. My grandfather had a spiderweb tattoo between his thumb and his index finger. I asked him about it once and he changed the subject. He had married late in life and had one child. In my memory, he's always dying. He was not as old as some people might get when they get to see old friends and forget who they are and what's going on. He should have had more time. My mother says he didn't take care of himself. That he smoked, he didn't take precautions when working with hazardous chemicals. She was right, but I suspect that she's also biased after taking such pains to keep her father-in-law alive. I think plenty of people lived harder and longer than Grandpa Tim. I was old enough to read, and he was sitting in a dilapidated old leather chair. He had a fuzzy blanket across his lap, tan with brown and orange triangles. That blanket looked like it smelled like tobacco, and it did indeed smell like tobacco. He's braiding together long strips of fabric scraps my mother could use to make a rug. He kept his hands busy, and he didn't even glance at his work. Instead, he would gaze at a point just past his feet, and seem to have no idea what was going on around him at all. I was bored. My friends had all gone upriver with the Anthes to learn about the land up there, and I had to stay home because I had eaten a handful of soap moss on a dare and got terribly sick, but I refused to cop to it because the adults would think I was a child and treat me like one, which I was, and which they did, even though they thought I had food poison. Pops had gone to the post office to pick something up. Why do you have a fish on your neck? The hands didn't stop braiding, but the head crooked to one side, and he pointed his eyes towards the bored child in the sunny, dusty room. It's a dolphin. Why you got a dolphin on your neck? Why shouldn't I? It's a dolphin. Someday go see the ocean. Things are different on the water. Everything goes exactly wherever the fuck they feel like. A dolphin goes where it likes. Why not go on my neck? It's a nice tattoo. This seemed like a good enough answer. I imagined a dolphin balancing on top of my head. I looked at his hands, braiding. What happened to your back? You know that already, don't you? There's a big fight. I fell on a log. I got up, and there's a broken branch. I had to be two fingers wide. And he stopped braiding. He held up two gnarly fingers. Sticking out of my back like I'm a pretty little fir tree. Broke a rib. It heal weird. That's why it's like that. He's actually looking at me now. What's the spider web? He turned away and started braiding again. 
It is what it is. What's your dad coming home with? The movement of his fingers on the braid would make the spider web expand and contract like a fishing net. It was mesmerizing back then. Still is. Looking at it now, I've never been so fucking lonely in my whole life. The fabric had to come from somewhere. Such small threads and such massive numbers. So many intricate designs. Just a few well-practiced movements. Repeated endlessly on a long shelf of arms. Casting the net. Pulling it in. Fill the hole. Cast again. Maybe it's not even a spider web. But the hands. These are hands that wove in life. Is it accidental? What's left? What could it mean that muscle memory is a thing that matters down here? How much of Tim is here weaving that fabric? And how much of this place was already up there, braiding the strips of tattered old bedsheets? I watch his hands, and I have a desperate urge to respond in a human way to all this. But this is not a human place. I try not to think about my breathing too hard. My lungs casting, pulling, dumping, casting again. Everything is dead. I set my pack down gently and hike up my pants. As I crouch down and put my arms over my head. Everything is dead. Trying to curl up into a little ball. Because everything is dead. Trying to find a place to settle down and regain my footing. But I'm fucking glowing. My living skin is the only source of light in this whole place, and trying to turn inward is like staring at a lamp. I realize that I've been keeping as quiet as possible. I suppose some part of me is still a little child, believing ghost stories. The ghouls here are not going to attack me, even if they are capable of noticing that I exist. I can yell and scream and kick things and get in the way, and nothing is going to happen except for some ridiculous assemblage of appendages is going to try and pick up my mess. So I do that. And I feel a little better. I howl a bit. I gesticulate wildly. A long six-legged table goes walking by, stacked high with nice linens. I get right in front of it. And I'm going to knock it over when the room goes quiet. The hands have stopped weaving. The table is standing in front of me. The spider web stretches from finger to finger, accusing. I pack my pack. I walk quickly out of the room. It is time to go. I brought enough food and water to stay overnight, but I wouldn't know if it was one night or three. And I can't imagine eating here. What kind of an idiot brings peanut butter to the city of the dead? It is time to go. I came to the fabric center from the packaging area through a furniture factory on the way. These rooms are so huge, it takes me at least five minutes to find my way back to the door, and then the motionless looms stand to my left, accusing me, and everything is dead, and I walk faster, and I hear the work continuing as I approach the door. I begin to jog, and then I run as fast as I can run quietly to the next room, and I turn the corner, and a dead woman in jeans and a white t-shirt is standing in the middle of the doorway, and I piss my pants. She does not immediately move. Her eyes are blue and gray like dead fish. Her face is on crooked, and one of her arms obviously doesn't match the other. I wonder if they just assembled her. 
I'm convinced that this is the beginning of a losing fight. I'll hear slow, shuffling masses, unhinged jaws, unstoppable force, crushing me by weight alone. There's only one dead woman, though. And she croaks a whisper. Are you looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? Am I looking for the office? I have no idea. Folks, there is an office. Should we be looking for it? What the fuck? What the fuck? I already wet my pants. I might as well find out where the office is. Perhaps there's an elevator. The uneven jaw clicks sideways. The t-shirt shifts slowly, settling into its frame. Otherwise, the dead woman is motionless. Yes, ma'am, I say. Her eyes are still pointed at where mine were when she last spoke. They shift to make contact again. All right, then. And she hobbles past me to a door behind the looms, and I follow. We walk along a gray tunnel. The walls are smooth, not raw rock. The floor is an ancient linoleum tile, cracked and peeling in some places, but mostly in good condition. It is a long walk, and then a door, which opens without turning the stainless steel knob. Reinforced glass on the window in the great door. Two large boxes full of screws, and lines of buttons along the side. A battered and greasy microwave. A sink with a large poster so faded I can barely discern the figures warning me to wash my hands. Ten broken chairs around two filthy cafeteria tables break room. We cross to another door. Another tunnel, this one lined with steel doors and windows. Behind the windows are cubicles. Most are empty. Some are occupied by tangles of arms, gooey-looking masses of blistering flesh. One simply contains a single ear, framed on the wall next to a wireless telephone headset. We come to a desk which seems to have been overgrown by a colonizing vine layer of fat globs and blood vessels, connected to a central stalk, which seems to be sprouting livers. Lots of organs around here. As we approach the desk, the livers rustle. A leg lifts its knee, extends a feminine calf. From the end of the foot, a rude tangle of tendons operates a pudgy and pallid hand. A drawer is opened. My dead companion speaks again. You hungry? The hand retracts. A bag of thin, transparent plastic clutched in its straining fingers. The bag holds a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I have not eaten in a while, and I am not hungry. It does not seem like a good idea to eat here. On the other hand, I barely understand what's going on, and it's always rude to turn down an offering of food. So, I say thank you. The bag is extended out to me. I reach over the desk to accept the offering. The livers sigh. A smell like roses and fresh rain and chocolate breaks through the piss and bleach reek of the room. 
I bow my head for a moment. When I look up, dead woman is already walking away. I'm confused. Should I go with her? I ask the livers. They sigh again. It's sad, but assenting. A Sunday afternoon in the summer. A pond rich with frogs and muck. And time to leave to begin the week. I can't help but smile a little bit. Goodbye, I said. And I trudge after the dead woman. I run my hands over the thin plastic, feeling the spongy white bread beneath. We go around a corner and take a left, take a left again. Down the hall, cubicles, steel doors, puke yellow infrastructure. In each little box is a computer, sticky notes, file cabinet drawers. All of this is in various states of distress and chaotic realignment. Each cubicle contains an adjustable chair with wheels and armrests. The inhabitants, as previously noted, are recombinations of spare parts, fused together according to the logic of manufacturing and logistics. Notable examples include a face with fingers instead of teeth, delicately gnawing on a keyboard under translucent gelatin eyes. I keep passing a common format of a blob of flesh with two forearms sticking out of it, delicate swaying tendrils growing dendritically from the tips of keratinous fingers. Looks like seaweed growing on a rock. I can't tell if I'm underwater. I wonder how long I've been down here. I wonder what time of day it is. What day of the week. I follow the dead woman as she approaches the door. When you through a storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of a storm. There's a golden sky And the sweet silver song, the sweet silver song.